1: Welcome to Remote Control, the Varieties TV podcast. I'm Deborah Burnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, I'm talking with Aline Brash McKenna, the executive producer of Crazy ex Girlfriend. Stay tuned. I am Deborah Birnbaum and it's my pleasure to welcome Aline Brash McKenna. Hi, how are you? Good I'm to good. See how you? are you? Good. So congratulations on Crazy X. Thank you very much. So I know we're having this conversation now before the finale is aired, but I have seen everything and it's all gonna post after it's aired. Right, okay. So, so we're gonna enter a spoiler-free zone, people. Okay. <laughs> so if you haven't watched it yet, turn this off and wait, watch it, and then we'll talk. Got it. Got so it. we're
0: totally spoiling everything. We're
1: totally spoiling down. everything. I'm down. down. I'm down to do that. Let's, Great. Let's, let's do it. Let's get in there. <laughs> yeah. So when did you come up with the idea for this finale? How did you know that this was going to end where it did?
0: Well, you know, we, um, as the, the season, the season, first half of the season is really dealing with her mental health and sort of coming to terms with um, really reaching her lowest point and getting a diagnosis. It's very intense. And sort of as she tries to um, make her life better, she starts to realize that there are things that she's done that she's never really made amends for. And it's there's an interesting kind of... Double meaning here because one of the reasons I love Rachel so much as a performer is I think she's so lovable that you forgive her everything. And I remember in the first season we had a line where she she passes a a homeless person who asks for money and she says, oh, I'm sorry, I only have 20s. I got them from working. And I thought, no one will ever be able to pull off that line. Then I thought, no, it's Rachel. She can pull anything off. So really, she's done a lot of um, not great things sort of over the course of the series. And what she realizes towards the end of the season is that she can't use her her charm or her diagnosis or anything else. She can't hide behind those things anymore. And she needs to sort of deal with personal responsibility but before she does that, in the finale, she's offered a very tantalizing way out, um, which is the man she loves offers her a way to get out of her predicament, um, having pushed someone off a roof. Um, as, one offered, yeah, as one does. As <laughs> one does. He's offered her a way out of this predicament, and he's offered a sort of a, a a path which which in which she doesn't have to take responsibility, but she gets to be with him, and she chooses between that and sort of trying to start to really grapple with some of the implications of her life that she hasn't dealt with because, you know, to be fair, she's been dealing with just sort of staying alive. Um, and so we, we thought that was a great dichotomy, and, and this was one area where Rachel and I really came together um, in a way which was on this song that, that Nathaniel sings her. This They sing each other a song about nothing is ever anyone's fault, um, and it's really a conversation about – you know how much is she responsible, and it's a it's a back and forth between them and um so we we Rachel described the idea which I loved, and then we sat in my living room and I threw out she you know is a brilliant songwriter, and I just throw out sentences um and she took a few of the sentences, and then she and Adam and Jack made it into that song um but it this theme of dealing with kind of all of the ramifications of her behavior. Um, since the beginning of the series, really coming to a head here. Mm-hmm. And I think sets up a nice question for next season, which is what does that look like for her to take responsibility? Exactly. So are we going to find her in jail next season? Um, we may. Um, we Rachel and I have always... Um, We always start planning things like way far in advance and we're always talking about things way far in advance. So we have some ideas already for season four. Um, But what was great about season three was that it felt like the meat of the matter in a way. You know, Mm -hmm. when you hear the title, um, she's really grappling with the mental illness portion because obviously crazy is not a medically uh, meaningful term. But she's actually dealing with the quote-unquote crazy part of it. And it's a very heightened season. So the whole season was really fun to make because everything was very heightened.
1: Very much so. And it felt like in that moment it was sort of her relationship with Paula that kind of made her hold up a mirror to herself. Talk about what that relationship with Paula has been like for her.
0: Yeah. I mean, for us, it's always been the main love story of the show. It's the, the the last moment of the pilot is when they find each other and hold hands. And it's a wedding of sorts. They kind of pledged themselves to each other. At the end of the last of last season, it literally ends in the place where she was supposed to marry Josh, holding Paula's hand and shot in stage very much like wedding vows. Um, and the end of this season is them looking at each other and saying, okay, you know, can we make it from here? Where do we go from here? And Paula being proud of her for taking that responsibility. Now in our show, nobody is ever right. And nobody (laughs) is ever pure. And Paula's got some messed up stuff to deal with herself. And it's interesting because a lot of times people want to point out to us that it's a dysfunctional friendship. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, of course it's a dysfunctional friendship and aren't all human relationships in some ways dysfunctional. Um, so just because Paula's not perfect doesn't mean she's not a person who represents something important to Rebecca. And the the last terrible thing that Rebecca does is betray Paula um, by making her think that Trent is out to get her and completely lying to her. And the audience is going to ha- hate her for that, uh, judge her for that, as they should. Um, and it's really to Paula that she makes another vow um every season really has ended with some sort of a vow. And this is a vow, like, uh, I'm going to try to do better. And the music cue for that is a slowed down um, uh, orchestral version of I'm a good person. Um, and then that's what we use also for our our credits is I'm a good person. So, <clears throat> which is a question she's been asking herself since episode five of the whole series, which is when that song, we first did that song. So, you know, her sort of um, vow to Paula, which is, I think I can be a better person, and I think for next season, Paula also is going to have to figure out how to sand off some of the edges of some of the morally mm-hmm. um, dodgy things that she does as well.
1: You referenced this earlier. I mean, she, you know, she gets away with so much because she is so lovable. Yeah. How far can you push her? I mean, literally, right. she did push someone off a roof, <laughs> right. and yet we're still kind of on her side. Right. How do you strike that balance?
0: Well, she was trying to protect someone. Um so I think in that instance she did what most people might do but she did invite Trent into her life and you know we always see Trent as her id and he is the obsessive side of her writ large and she often has to do direct battle with him and he is a manifestation of her own obsessive romantic qualities. Um no I think the worst thing that she does I actually think the worst thing she's does in the whole series is in earlier episode this season, she tells Paula that the legal stuff she wrote was terrible um, and says, this isn't good enough, we can't use it, and I don't want to pursue this case because of it, because that the uh, legal stuff, being a lawyer, being smart, is so important to Paula, and it's also her Achilles heel because her dad always told her she was a dumb dumb. So I actually, that that's, um, which is in episode three, was the hardest thing to shoot. Um, and then this, in, in episode 12, when she tells Paula that um, Trent is blackmailing her, which he's not. You know, lying, lying is something she does very uh, deftly. Um, and again, you know, it has a lot to do with... I mean, one of the reasons I actually think that this show ended up being a CW show and not a Showtime show is because Rachel just has a little um, ball of sunshine inside her soul, and it's a theater kid lovable sunshiny, joyful little beam, and it, there was no way ever to get it to be any darker and any more sort of like there's just... Her Tony Soprano light is is very... Um, is, is much brighter. And so we... I think in some ways it works better on the CW because the, the Showtime always wanted the show to be a little darker, and and Rachel really even when she embraces the darkest things, the meanest things, the saddest things, um, there is just a joy that leaks out of her that makes it makes the whole thing
1: um, gives the whole thing some air under it. So, is there ever a chance that she could actually get healthy, or is that just sort of the journey of the show?
0: Yeah, I mean she's she's got a lot to deal with. Um, And I think she's got a lot to deal with psychologically and emotionally, but she also has a lot to deal with in terms of the effect she's had on other people's lives. Because one of the big themes of the show is sort of none of these people would have the lives they had, would it, were it not for her, Josh and Valencia would have gotten married and had the nice suburban life. Paula would never have gone to law school. Daryl would never have figured out he was bisexual. I mean, she's had a huge impact on people. Um, And that's wonderful, but there are also ramifications for that, one of which is she gave someone the egg for a baby, and um, that is sort of the embodiment of her putting things out into the world without really thinking about what the ramifications of those are. She's, she's a bit heedless
1: in that way. So we have a lot of fun stuff to deal with next year. Yeah. Certainly the baby is going to be a huge plot point because you've got Heather as the mother, right? There's a, there are, you know, it, it, it kind of ta- you know, taps into a lot of issues.
0: Uh, I don't know if we'll ever, it's funny. Um, I think people are afraid of the baby, um, because babies can kill TV shows. Um, uh, and we have a lot of parents on the show. We don't necessarily see their kids that much. So I don't know how much we're going to see the actual baby. Um, you know, just a uh, uh, behind the scenes. I just desperately did not want to shoot a baby. <laughs> no so in the finale, um, we have a extremely life 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 like freakily weird, very pricey life like baby doll that we used because I television. just didn't want to use to deal with a real baby. So I have a little bit of an aversion to actual real baby stuff. I don't know how much actual baby stuff we'll see, but definitely the the. The idea that she's brought a life into the world that affects everybody and Daryl has a second child and Madison has a daughter and um, it's kind of nice for Heather because she gets, I think she'll get off scot-free a bit. She did a a thing for her friend and now she can kind of do whatever. Um, But yeah, I mean,
1: she's, Rebecca doesn't
0: give a lot of thought about
1: her future and now she's going to try. Well, that's what I meant. I mean, it was less about yeah. seeing the baby on screen and more yeah. of the, you know, she's obviously got some maternal issues. So now yes. the idea that she's a mother herself, yes. even if just biologically, yes. how is that going to impact her? Yeah.
0: Well, she's also not so sure about the condition of her DNA and what she's passed on to a child. Um, and so, and then I think one obvious necessary thing, she hasn't really dealt with her mother. We have not seen her mother since the episode where we found out her mother was drugging her. Um, this season when I talk about the show, it sounds like I'm talking about Riverdale. Um, so we haven't seen her <laughs> since Crossover <then>. episode coming. <laughs> um, and um, so we haven't seen her mom since then. So that's definitely something we owe as well, is sort of how is she going to figure out a way to inculcate her mother into her life or not.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to see how she reacts to being a grandmother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and not having access to the... Yes. That's a good story
1: pitch, All Deborah. right, that, that's, that's what I good, got for you. That's a good, good <laughs> I episode a Jewish, pitch. I have, I have a, Jewish, a Jewish mother. I have a Jewish mother you right. can tap into. Happy to lend her out. Many she's, of us on the show have Jewish mothers, <laughs> yes. And then talk about her love life, too. I mean, it feels like she yeah. actually is connected to Nathaniel. She yeah. just can't seem to make it work.
0: Yeah. That, um, you know, like all things, uh, one of the wonderful things about the tel- a television show is that all of these relationships are written, but they, they are also a product of what's actually happening behind the scenes. Um, and Rachel and Scott get along so well and they trust each other so much. And it's so easy to do whatever we want with them. And they have a great kind of effortless chemistry. Um, Scott has a girlfriend, Rachel's married, but you know, they, they have a great, um, it's a great, safe, fun space. So we're able to do kind of whatever we want with them. And, um, He treats her with so much love and respect so no matter how how crazy the stuff gets between them they've just had very good chemistry right from the beginning um and i think we're very lucky because it's hard to add a cast member in the middle of your second season and i just have never seen anybody fall in more quickly with this with a group ever
1: it's such a strong ensemble how much are you writing to them at this point do they come in and pitch you ideas as well
0: they don't really do that so much once in a while, but we do write to them like the storyline we did this year where Heather's, no one can figure out what um, ethnic background Heather is, that that happens to Vela all the time. And so um, she came into the writer's room and sat and talked to us about her experience for that. So we use them as a resource, but we develop the storylines. And then at the beginning of the year, they all come in for a lunch with the writer's room um, when we're about six or eight weeks into the story breaking and we tell them what we think we have on tap for them for the season. And it's always, like, they're such fun lunches. And by far, the funnest person to pitch to is Vincent, who plays Josh, because he is, like, a true fan of the show. And he will, like, gasp and get excited. And, and just, he, he loves the, the story twists. Um, but yeah, we write to them as much as we can. I mean, 13 episodes is not as much real estate as I wish we had. You know, we have so many amazing um, cast members. And, so many people who can sing i mean we just we just michael hyatt who plays the therapist that had one song before but she just had a big song in episode 10 and she's
1: it was fantastic
0: <laughs> crazy incredible singer and there's there's a lot of people on the show who can sing that we haven't even featured yet um like burl who plays jim burl mosley who plays jim is an amazing singer and he he's he's has sung one line in the show but we you know so we we have so we're we have an embarrassment of riches with talented people
1: on the show At what point do the songs get layered in? Do they happen organically, or do you plan them when you're going into each episode? So every um, every all the
0: songs come out of the story breaking. So we can't write any songs until the stories are broken. Uh, Because if we could, then it would be efficient to write them during our breaks. But none of the the songwriters can't work until we know the stories. So um, Rachel and I do a pre pre break of the season. where we break as much of it as we can, just the two of us, and then we do a little writer's boot camp with Rachel Adam and Jack, so let's say we have ideas for four or five songs, and they start on those um, and then the writer's room comes in, and then as we break the stories and outline the stories, the songs come from that and so um, either it'll come out in the writer's room, there'll be an idea for a song, or um more likely Rachel Adam or Jack will hear about the episode or. Will, Rachel's in the writer's room for the first couple months. Um, and she'll say, oh, we could do a song here. Or we could do a song there. Or Jack will say, we could do a song here. We could do a song there. Um, and we don't, we don't almost never retrofit a song. We almost never just say like, oh, someone wrote a funny song. Let's stick it in there. Except for Heavy Boobs, which I, Rachel sang me when I met her. <laughs> and I said, we're putting that in the show. And I don't care if it makes any sense at all. I don't care if we just stop the story to do it. Um, it's a classic. Yes, it's a classic. I have teeny boobs, but I feel like even I knew that that was nailing something about the heavy boob experience. So so, so very rarely will we do that. They're always driven by the story. So when the production catches up to the script writing, there's a always a mid-season store a song panic and unlike most showrunners who just need to make sure that they get the scripts and the stories done I need to make sure that we get the scripts and the stories done far enough in advance so that we can um get the songs in there and then I because I I have song credits on a bunch of the songs but it's mainly because I just threw out sentences um and so then I have to follow everyone around asking for their homework where's the song where's the song where's the song (laughs) and that's um a challenge, but Jack, who's who's also who writes songs and is also on our writer staff, helps me a lot with that. And I have now found a way to have him pester um, Rachel and Adam too in his more diplomatic way.
1: So, perfect. <laughs> the songs are so wonderfully genre busting. I mean, yeah. they really is there one genre you haven't done yet that you want to oh, take on? I think on? there's a
0: ton. There's a ton. We've never um, actually. Uh, Butted up against, like, I mean, once in a while we'll say, "Oh, we did that that genre already." But then it's pretty easy to find. I wouldn't say it's easy, but and and sometimes the joke of a song really locks in once you find the genre. You know, um, w- w- you know, once in a while, and and I will say the hardest songs to write and the hardest songs for everyone to agree on are the ones that are genreless. Um, so, like, there's, oh my god, I think I like you from the first season it's kind of a pop song it's kind of a carly ray jepsen song it's kind of a but it isn't a very specific um parody of any particular type of music and so those are always the hardest ones to nail because there's less of a template
1: i'm sure you get asked this all the time but do you have a favorite
0: a favorite song mm-hmm. um I have, like, a lot of favorite songs. Um, you know, we've done over 100. I mean, they've written over 100. I think, we'll, I think we'll be 115 by the end of the season. And I, I think that I'm so close to the process that I think, and I have never once lost my sense of amazement. No one has ever done what they're doing. No one has ever written that many original comedy songs ever. And I sometimes just, like, freak out about it because you know, to be to be working on a, a script or an episode and then get a song in your inbox and it's just absolutely fucking brilliant. And there's so many of them. Uh, we're often looking at each other in disbelief. And Adam always says that it's because I didn't realize that it was going to be that hard because I'm the only one who doesn't come from musicals or rock music or songwriting. So I just thought, well, we did t- two songs in the pilot. We'll just continue to do two songs every week. And it didn't occur to me that how hard it would be. Um but it's an astonishing achievement, I think, in the American Songbook. And um, Rachel and I are actually in the process of starting to, to talk about how we're going to make it into a Broadway musical. Really? Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah. And we have so many. I mean, the you know, n- to go into Broadway musicals saying we have 150. We, we will have maybe, if we do another season, we'll have 150 songs. Trying to pick out just the, the, the key songs that you would need to do a um, – a Broadway show there'd be a lot of winnowing and so
1: I'm sure some of my favorites will fall by the wayside I don't want to get diverted into the Broadway musical idea yeah. but do you see that as a, a story based thing would there be a plot to go along with it yeah. or is it just oh yeah
0: oh yeah 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 Now we're going to do um, Rebecca's story as a
1: Broadway musical oh that would be wonderful yeah
0: coming soon to the
1: theaters near you yeah yeah um, the other thing I love about the show is that it really challenges the audience. I mean, you, you ha- it bears close attention. You have to listen to it because there's so many inside jokes that are layered into it. You, you know, you, you, you're asking that your audience be smart, that they know about the Atlantic or know what the Bechdel test means. Uh-huh. Like, how much fun is that for you to layer uh-huh. all of that in there?
0: Well, we, layer a lot of, we also layer a lot of references um, to other things in the show. And it's funny because Rachel loves to bring back sort of stuff we've done before, inside jokes, and I will only go along with that as long as it's something that you can decode whether you've seen it or not. Because I really, I some shows, especially when they've been on the air, they can sort of devolve into a bunch of in jokes. And mm-hmm. I, I always want to feel like you could just start it with any episode and enjoy it. So try not to do too many things that are references. But I think if you're a fan of the show, there are so many layered references, and a lot of them are musical. And Rachel's incredible at that; she remembers every line we've ever written or shot, and every piece of music we've ever recorded so she will often make connections between you know between things the very high tone references is comes from me and um they're what the room calls two percenters which is like a very low percentage joke um but i i love them because and again same thing i only do it if i feel like it'll work even if you don't know that who susan Faludi is and you don't know what backlash is you just get that it's like some hoity-toity writer, and um, and we like to shout out to to things that we love. And I sort of don't care if people don't get the reference because you know what? They have a machine and they can type it in, and maybe they'll learn who Roxanne Gay is and they didn't know before. Or um, so I, I love the obscure. Mm-hmm. I love the obscure
1: stuff. I think it's it's wonderful. It's just another characteristic <laughs> of the show. What's your relationship like with Rachel at this point creatively? I've you know I've heard you reference it in interviews as a you know sort of similar to the Rebecca Paula relationship. Yeah. Do you think it is that? Has it gone beyond that?
0: Well, you know we always say it's like daughter, mother, sister, uh best friend, wife, um partner. It's so many things. Uh you know I've had I've worked very closely with people many times before, but Rachel and I had a connection that it's interesting it took right away we really loved hanging out and loved talking but over time this other relationship developed which is like you know i spoke at her wedding i babysat her dog i and and i um i have some work relationships like that that's spilled, spilled over into my personal life but mostly not and rachel and i just it's it's hard to it is a lot like a, my marriage i've been married for 20 years you can't Rachel and I are a living record of all the things we've been through. And it's been, you know, since we met in 2013, it's been a very long road. And um, it's it's founded on being loving towards each other. You know, it's it's founded on trying to be as compassionate and loving as we can with each other. And when we're full, all, all rockets revving, making the show it can be hard to stop and sort of understand where the other person is and and the stresses that they're dealing with. And so I think that uh, we have a lot more process conversations probably than male partners do, but we have a lot of conversations about, especially because I have to protect her health and well-being because she works so many hours as an actor, and my top priority, as everyone knows on the show, is her health and well-being. I didn't hire a single person that I – every single person I hired – in every capacity is somebody that i count on to notice if she looks tired or she needs a glass of water um, because she's a very buoyant, bubbly person and and I don't want to push her to a, a place where she is, you know, unhappy or sick or exhausted. And it can happen very easily. It would happen if you're starring on a show and you're not also writing and, and writing songs and, and doing all the other things that she does um, the thing that she has to do that i from the sidelines looks the most exhausting is the publicity stuff she does like an enormous amount of publicity stuff that obviously no one else has to do and um, except for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, well not on that scale i mean the amount of stuff i do is so and that can really zap her sure. because that's a performance of of sorts you know mm-hmm. um, so yeah we're we're you know our we're friends. Our dogs are friends. Our spouses are friends. We've spent a lot of holidays together. Um, and she's a very
1: social person, and she's very close to the cast. Also, um, it's a good segue to talk about female yeah. film. F- sorry, female yeah. filmmaker Friday, yeah. which I know you helped initiate. Yes. Talk about why you decided to do that. Why was it so important to get those images out there?
0: Well, it's funny. I uh, Rachel was saying the other day that I I, I found Rachel's videos because I was procrastinating. And the Female Filmmaker Friday thing also a result of procrastinating. I was on Instagram, and I saw my friend Tamara Davis had posted a picture of herself directing, and she said, um, we need more images of women directing. And I thought that was really powerful, and I've always loved pictures of any director, male or female, on set. There's just something so cool about it. Um, And so I I emailed... um, Tamara and I said, what do you think of asking a bunch of female filmmakers to post pictures of themselves on set? Would be cool. And she was like, yeah, that would be great. And then we asked people, and it just kind of snowballed. Um, and it was fun because, again, I'm procrastinating because there's a script I'm supposed to be re- <laughs> rewriting. And there's nothing more fun than instead of writing than just checking Twitter and seeing all these pictures. And what I love about it is, you know, there'll be pictures of a 16 year old, you know, shooting 16 millimeter in her backyard on up to Ava DuVernay or, or um, you know, Natalie Portman just posted something, Gal Godot posted something, you know, it's really, and, and what I also love about it is that. Um, It's long since transcended its origin, and so people just think it's a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like National Puppies Day. It's just like a thing that has become a thing, and I I love that, you know, and I think... Um, I was always really hungry for images of women who did my job. I don't know if you felt like this growing up. Definitely. You're just always...
1: um, You want to know that it's possible. Yeah. If you can see it, then you think it's possible. Right.
0: And even if it was not exactly movie writing, but it was Rosalind Russell and His Girl Friday or Holly Hunter and Broadcast News, it's like smart women in media jobs. I mean, I was always hungry for um, stories about that and pictures of that. And, you know, one of the... I remember... Being really um, interested in Meryl Marco because she was working on the Letterman show, and I just, but I didn't know what she looked like, and I remember trying to find pictures of what she looked like, and so now it's just, I think it is, it's very powerful to see a pregnant woman, you know, holding a viewfinder. One of the things that's been really amazing is so many women of color, um, non-white women, have really. Posted tons of pictures. Um, Gina Prince by the Wood was the first person that I, before we did it, I asked her, like, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think women would do this? And so she was one of the first person I emailed and said, we're doing it. And she posted a picture of herself on a movie that hasn't been released yet. So that was exciting. Yeah. Um, and everybody just, you know, I, so I think. It's not just that you've seen famous women, you've seen young people, you've seen old people, you've seen pregnant women, you've seen, you know, women from every, every possible background. There's been a lot of international people who posted and like, it's a silly thing, but one girl just post one woman posted a picture of herself in a dress. You can direct an address, you know, you don't have to look a certain, the other thing is to say, you know, if you don't feel like you're somebody who is a baseball hat, combat boot kind of person, you don't need to be that, you know? Um... Paul Feig wears a beautiful tailored three piece suit every day to work and if you're a woman and you decide you want to you know look like Donatella Versace every day at work go ahead
1: it's such an important conversation to be having right now in the midst of the b two times up movement yeah. looking forward to that next chapter, how do we get past it right One of the things I keep telling men is we need more women in positions of power yes, and I think again to your point, seeing it will help make it happen yes,
0: and also just. People have such a bias towards hiring people that look like him, like them. There be there's been numerous studies that people will populate their office or their workplace with someone who really answers to their own description, um, and or or is an image that they've seen before. So it's like I do think that that's why there were so many young baseball hatted cargo shorted guys that got these hundred million dollar movies was because because of. Spielberg and J.J. and people like that. That's what we had in our head. And I think if you have in your head, you know, a six foot tall lady who's pregnant and holding a hand of her two-year-old while she's directing, or you have a a 20-year-old, you know, a, a Asian lady, uh, you know, if you have all different types of people, that'll change your perception of what someone looks like who's holding a viewfinder, or you know, is on set. So those images, I think, can be very important, and it's also, it seems like it has also been a nice way for women to connect with each other, and, um, and that's great. Look, you know, no matter what their, the, the perils of social media are, I do think that most of those complaints um, come from people who are trying to protect a world that doesn't exist anymore, and the fact is, If you have something to contribute, something to complain about, something to say, someone you want to reach out to, you can just do it now. And the reason that I have this television show is because Rachel Bloom was able to upload something to YouTube without asking a man, without asking a corporation. Um, And so for whatever its flaws, social media allows people who would not have access to the, the reins of the media to say, this is who I am, this is what I have to say.
1: That's perfect. Um, you came from the screenwriting world yourself. I did. What has it been like for you to now be on the TV side of it? What do you think of the state of the movie business right now?
0: Well, it was funny. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a screenwriter, and I was saying, please come join us. I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I have spent so many years, really 20-some years, being a studio writer, and... I am just listening to this podcast about being in a cult. And I was really um, thinking about, you know, I learned to sublimate my um, opinions and sort of get along, go along, look past. You know, I'm ashamed at how much I just sort of look past people saying gross, creepy, weird things to me. And I just never said anything. I, I kind of accepted all the limitations of being in this in a feature writer which is you know sort of having to apologize for your existence a little bit and having to slot your personality in with other personalities a lot of screenwriters are just either very retiring or they're very good at sort of you know getting their way in a roundabout kind of way and i'm not really like that dispositionally Uh, my friend john glickman who direct who um, produced 27 dresses likes to remind me of the story of um, they tried to change uh, benny the Benny and the jets song in twenty seven dresses Anne Fletcher did, wanted to change the song and I love Anne, and she made so many right choices in the movie, but i didn 't think that was the right choice and I called literally every single person that I could think of. I called Elizabeth Gabler. Um, I think I may have called Tom Rothman <laughs> um, and I am just by my my nature I am a a very outgoing gregarious uh, person who 's not af- afraid of confrontation and when you 're a screenwriter you just so much of it is having to um accommodate people whose who's opinion who's, what happened to me over you know is that i had been doing it for a long time and they would start to hire directors for these prod these scripts that i'd written and i'd be like really this guy are we sure are you are you sure you're sure um and sometimes it just would be a disaster and i just felt like i felt more and more like I would rather make my own mistakes. Mm -hmm. I was really feeling like I had made a lot of other people's mistakes and my name was on it. And it was, I don't know how family friendly your podcast is, but um, Rachel said to me at some point, she said, I feel like a lot of the stories you tell me (laughs) end with you had a great idea or you wrote a great script and then some man jizzed on it. Um, And which is a very Rachel thing to to say. And I kind of couldn't argue with that. And the best creative experience I had as a screenwriter was with David Frankel. And now I'm going to say David Frankel didn't jizz on the movie, which is a weird sentence, but he was the most respectful because he was a writer. He was extremely respectful. And the whole rest of that group is women, Wendy, Elizabeth, Carla, Karen, all women supervising. And they never ever dictated that there, she, she's got to run off with a guy at the end. It's like, it was, it was what it was going to be. Um, And they supported it as a very, you know, that is a movie that's about women and about the choices women make. And it does not approach those things from a patriarchal point of view. So long way of saying the feature business had gotten harder and harder and harder. I didn't plan to leave it for TV, but that door was open. And the way they treat you is just night and day. They just respect you in a completely different way. You have to then become a producer and a manager and a boss and all these other things, which, is not right for every writer um, and may not have worked as well for me when my kids were one and three, you know. Um, but I, you know, having... TV is good because writers control television. The creative content of television is controlled by writers, and that is why it's better than movies, period. And if everybody... I, my, I had a friend, who um, was a playwright named John Tolens, and he used to say that if... how what would Hollywood be like if they shot just the writer's first draft? It couldn't be worse.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And then obviously we also, we moved to these like big bombastic movies that I don't understand. Um, I go, I really honestly don't understand what's happening in most of them. And I sit next to my son and ask him questions because he seems to be able to follow them. So, you know, the movie business is in a very weird place. And then television is a, because of, Really, because there's been because t- TV didn't used to be that way. TV it used to be worse. Mm-hmm. I started in TV, and TV used to be even worse about putting writers through the sausage mill. Really was horrible, especially comedy. But now, because of really the way HBO and then Netflix changed the landscape, um, you know, writers are king, and I think we're all benefiting that. You, we're all in this room, you know, planning what to binge next, and they're all super writer-driven um,
1: stuff. So including Crazy X. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. I'll be talking with Jordan Klepper, the star of The Opposition on Comedy Central. See you next time.